the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hello and welcome to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. We're glad that you're joining us on this Thursday afternoon. As always, you can follow us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or online at 1160hope.com. You can text us at 68683. That's 68683. Type in CG followed by your comment. And as always, uh, you can find our podcast wherever it is that you get your podcasts, uh, whatever platform that is. Go ahead and subscribe to it, rate, review, and uh, we would appreciate that. Well, happy Thursday, man. How are you? I am so tired. I was going to say, okay. Okay. I'm doing okay. okay. I mean, it's all relative at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The other day, uh, you were feeling loopy, yeah. And uh, and uh, today, still same. Shh. I mean, I'm in a pretty constant state of some level of loop, <laughs> looptitude, loop to no. See, uh, loop to loop. I should. I shouldn't have even. I shouldn't talk. I'm sorry. Yeah, oh, you're good. You're good. Well, again, we're glad that you're joining us today, uh, Ian Simpkins, and I am Brian Fromm, and. Uh, we're excited to be together for the next two hours. and Aww, we're together. We're together. And so one of the things that we've talked about uh, more times, every time we do it, we're like, I hope we don't have to talk about that much more. And then it comes back in the news. And that's the topic of abortion. And not that we want to avoid it, not that we're trying to stay away from it, just because it's so heavy and it's hard. And it feels like our nation is becoming uh, just... This is the topic that increasingly is energizing both sides and both sides are just moving further and further apart. And uh, man, I don't know about you, but as I hear the abortion debate, uh, it just not only just saddens me, but it makes me it's starting to make me really angry and really kind of like, nope, I'm this is the one I'm going to fight. This yeah, is the right. one I'm in on. And that, I say that in light of what just happened in Illinois yesterday, right, with Governor Pritzker. Uh, I might get some of the details wrong, but he basically signed the extreme abortion bill that we've all been talking about and hoping wouldn't become law. Uh, I think I have that right. But, you know, we are like Illinois is like uh, one of the top states for abortions now. And so that's just craziness and just really sad. He was saying he wanted it to be a destination, right? Was another word he used? Yeah. It's just the um, it's the callousness that is just so crazy. It, it really is. And with that in mind, uh, one of the. Uh, not one of the main uh, Democratic hopefuls for president, but one of the people who's a little further down. Her name's Kirsten uh, Gillibrand or Gillibrand, Gillibrand. And uh, I was listening the other day to what she said in an interview about abortion. And it was one of the most extreme and quite frankly, uh, dishearteningly scary things I've ever heard. And about, in like in, in uh, the abortion conversation, uh, for those of you who are a, more pro-life and against abortion. If you want to know where the thought process is going with many people on the other side, 
Uh, this is going to be enlightening. Let's listen to this. Imagine saying um, that it's okay to appoint a judge who's racist or anti-Semitic or homophobic. Um, telling, uh, uh, asking someone to appoint someone who takes away basic human rights of any group of people in America. I, I think that we are, we've, we've, I don't think those are political issues anymore. And we believe in this country in the separation of church and state. And I respect the rights of, of every American to hold their religious beliefs true to themselves. But our country and our Constitution has always demanded that we have a separation of church and state. And all these efforts by President Trump and other ultra-radical conservative judges and justices to impose their faith on Americans is contrary to our Constitution, and that, that's what this is. And so I believe that for all of these issues, um, they are not issues that there is a fair other side. There is no moral equivalency when you come to racism. And I do not believe there's a moral equivalency when it comes to changing laws that deny women reproductive freedom. I mean, it, that is just dumbfounding. That there's no moral equivalence. There's it literally, she's saying there's no other side. And she is describing uh, abortion and, and really radical abortion laws as a fundamental right. And that anybody like it is not possible to believe the other side. And anyone who does, while I quote unquote respect their religion, <laughs> that it's just a religious issue and that's all it could be to it. Like, I don't know. I don't know how you feel when when I first played that for you. I was driving in my car and it just literally just made me really sad. Yeah, the the suggestion that the pro-life position is is not about protecting human life and more about trying to intertwine faith and government. I mean, again, just anecdotally feels like a weak argument. Right. Right. Like, you know, we've been, I think, pretty clear about our positions, you and I personally, just as Christ followers and pastors. But it just didn't even seem like a really solid political move in general, even for the people that agree with her. Yep. And I don't, I mean, man, I, is it getting crazier or do we just have more access to the craziness? Like I think it's getting crazier. You think it is more polarized. Like think about Joe Biden the other day. Sure. Did you see what happened with Joe Biden? Joe Biden has always been, uh, he has talked in a book that he wrote about the conflicting nature of his own policies because he's a staunch Catholic right. and going back and forth. And one of the things that he has always been a champion of something called the Hyde Amendment that um, more or less says you, there's no federal funding that can go towards abortions. Uh, and he got roasted by it when mm. it came out and then he flipped. He just changed it the next day. Like, oh, and then he, of course, he had his political reasons. The whole reason was because he got roasted. Right. This is Joe Biden. He's been out there for 50 years. Right. And now when he wants to run for president on the Democratic side, it's like, yep, no, you can't even believe that. And that's what I mean by the <laughs> polarization, like the uh, the radicalization, I should say, of it. And this should really scare us like this should those of us who believe in a in a um, in a pro-life ethic. Uh, that that all human life matters, including the life of an unborn baby, should be really scared, I think. Uh, scared might not be the right word. Should be really on guard about where this discussion is even going. So how do you keep from differentiating what you just said to kind of you, you, you and I went after Pence a little bit a couple of weeks ago about this sort of like, hey, the world's uh, they're going to get you. It was like a, it was a commencement speech, right? Uh -huh, uh -huh. We sort of talked about how some of the fear mongering in that kind of context maybe isn't helpful. How, how do you thread that needle 
um, with what we're reading right now versus what we we had said about that speech. Yeah, I don't think this is even fear mongering on this one. This is their, their own words. I'm not saying this it is. I'm saying, but I think for me, the Pence one was hard because it was like, you know, the world's out to get you. It's your faith. That's the problem. And, and so mm, they, they okay. feel little apples and oranges to me. For me, this is these are these candidates own words. And it, watch these Democratic debates, man. They're going to go. Someone's there. The, whoever's winning this is going to have to go way left and then come back more to the middle to try to win. Right. But when the, the way left move is going to be really. It's, and then you read the stuff about Illinois. You read the stuff about New York. Like, yeah, like you and I have really we try to like tamper down a little bit with most subjects. And this this one feels like, no, that we got to be on guard. Like we got to. Like, this is an important one to use a phrase we always use. This is a hill to die on. And I think I think the church needs to view it that way. Well, and I, and I do think, too, that it, it almost feels a little dismissive for her to say, oh, I, I, uh, I believe in everyone's right. Yeah. I respect their right to hold their religious beliefs as if it's just simply that. Like, if the argument was, should we have the Ten Commandments in our classrooms? Right. That actually is a that's a religious argument. Yeah. Like, oh, we believe that these, uh, you know, we believe this to be true and should be in every classroom. But like. To, to not speak of it as a sanctity, sanctity of life issue, I think, is to massively miss the point and feels pandering at best, dismissive yep. at worst. And that to, uh, that to me is just an, a really, really uh, unhelpful, tone-deaf way, I think, yep. to talk about a very complex issue. And, and somebody told me the other day, like, I can tend to be naive about things sometimes. And, I, man, I think I've maybe I've just been naive, but I'm really surprised by where this has gone yeah me too <laughs> the things people are saying and the things people are willing to do is just it's just shocking to me so uh, we'd love to hear your feedback you can do so at facebook at the common good radio show uh or you can text us 68683 type in cg followed by your comment well coming up next we're going to talk about the prosperity gospel and particularly an article by someone who said why i used to believe in the prosperity gospel like kenneth copeland believes that's what's coming up next on the common good on am 1160 hope for your life Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. We're excited to have you join us today. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show online at 1160hope.com. You can also find our podcasts and as well as text us 68683, type in CG, followed by your comment. Did you see the pictures in the article, not the article, the uh, interview going around the other day, Kenneth Copeland? Oh, yes. Wasn't that unbelievable? I especially liked the meme where somebody photoshopped his face to look like the old school Joker. That was good. (laughs) That was really good. Yeah, I've watched it more times than I should have. Folks, if you haven't, you've got to go watch it. The guy is like mentally stable. It just goes unhinged right there in front of you. And the, the reporter was just. Did a good job, just kind of interviewed. But anyway, I, I saw a bunch of people come out though and like slam the reporter and defend him. Really? Mm-hmm. For yeah. what reason? Anyone? It's, they said that she was being antagonistic and uh, asking questions she had no business asking. Typically, when comments are framed like that, I'm like, okay, well, maybe I think you've lost the plot on this one. <laughs> Personally, so we bring up Kenneth Copeland for this article that was written. Uh, the the article is titled "Why I Used to Believe in the Prosperity Gospel Like Kenneth Copeland Believes." So Kenneth Copeland, a lot of that interview had to do with. The reporter pushing him about private uh, jets that he owns and all this other stuff yeah. that he's been using in this reporter's view, been using people's giving and their money in order to kind of 
uh, prop himself up. What's also interesting is that this article is written by somebody by the name of Costi uh, or Costi W. Hin, and the last name should sound familiar. Mm-hmm. Uh, this uh, article, this author's uncle is Benny Hinn, also one of the most well-known prosperity gospel preachers. In fact, uh, he says, it's difficult uh, to get time with prosperity preachers. I would know, as I used to be one and work with one, my uncle, Benny Hinn. Uh, and he says, I grew up in the prosperity gospel. I lived it, believed it, and bankrolled it. My family was at the center of it with Uncle Benny leading the charge until eventually my eyes opened to the exploitation and abuse of it. I can't speak for everyone, but I can offer some insight as to why it might be believable. So he gives three reasons as to why uh, the prosperity gospel flourishes and why it's preached. But before we get into the three, maybe give a reader's digest version of what is, what do we mean when we use the phrase prosperity gospel? Oh, man, put me on the spot here. Pros- readers, prosperity readers gospel, I think, definitely um, can vary based on you know tradition and honestly, even just part of the country. But it, it tends to point towards the final destination that God wants you to be prosperous in every material way possible, which means um, financial prosperity, uh, that your health is always batting a thousand, mm-hmm. that um, that that is a sign of God's uh, consistent blessing and favor on your life, that your relationships are always solid, that you're never in physical pain and that uh, you flourish both emotionally, physically, uh, financially at mm-hmm. all times. And it turns into a bit of a pyramid scheme. So those wealthy preachers at the top, they tend to be the most prosperous uh, guys like Kenneth Copeland, Joel <laughs> yep. Osteen, right? Um, and uh, uh, Benny Hinn and others. So uh, now Costi Hinn worked for his uncle and he was a prosperity preacher. So he knows of what he speaks. Uh, and he gave us a list of three things as to why the prosperity gospel is so believable, why it's uh why people buy into it and why people preach it. So why don't you give us the, that list? Yeah, and really quickly before I do, and you mentioned at the top, I would recommend go watch the uh, Kenneth Copeland video. Yes. Um, and it's just a couple minutes long. I think it will give you a a little bit of a frightening context mm-hmm. as to the depths of how this can go because in some ways – you know, Osteen, every once in a while, I think, is, says true things. I think so, too. Every and I'm like, oh, like, oh, 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 right on. Which I think it's important to actually see some of the um, the dark underbelly in a way that's pretty exposed. But, yeah, the three I thought were fascinating. So, number one, uh, he said, it made us rich. Life in the prosperity gospel is the good life. No, let me go further. It's the great life, at least on the surface. Our houses were multi-million dollar homes in the best zip codes in the country. Our annual salaries were more than some people make in a lifetime. I drove a BMW, a Hummer, a Ferrari, F430, Mercedes-Benz. On a run-of-the-mill weekend, we could easily make upwards of $100,000 take-home from offerings in our services for barely three days of work. So, money. Money. <laughs> That's, I mean, shocked. Yeah. But... In general, like that's I appreciate the honesty. Like, hey, this is one of the things that made it really hard to ever get out. I made a ton of money doing it, and I don't. Does that surprise you? No, hundred thousand dollars a weekend. Yeah. Oh, that number is crazy. Like that's right? that's unbelievable. And uh, but it, the fact that it's money shouldn't surprise us because let's go let, let's go. Uh, the opposite of the prosperity gospel is the gospel, and Jesus <laughs> says the love of money is the root of all evil. You're going to worship either God or money. Uh, so it's not surprising that money is at the root of this, which is pretty crazy because this is a name I've not really heard until reading this article. So if he's saying hundred thousand take home from a weekend, yep. I imagine those figures could even go up from there, which yep. is crazy. Number two, it made us powerful. Our family had bodyguards, layers of security and the ability to tell anyone to do anything and it would be done. 
Picture a mob boss snapping his fingers and his hitman nodding without saying a word. That is life in the prosperity gospel power seat. The travel, the accommodations, the staff hierarchy, mm. the attention, the notoriety, and the bravado and the ability to control tens of thousands of people during a service are all reasons why the prosperity gospel lures preachers into selling their soul. Wow. Money and power. <laughs> like uh, it, Those that, are big ones. Those are the biggies. Like, that's... But to beat that picture of like having people at your service, yeah, uh, not at your service, like as in your gathering, but literally serving you and you can boss. It's it's like a mob boss. And number three probably won't be a surprise either. Then it made us prominent for whatever money can't give and power can't satisfy. There is the prominence and notoriety that come from being a global force. The prosperity gospel put us on the map. And honestly, that felt really good from poverty stricken immigrants to having kings and presidents requesting the presence of the Hinn family at their home. Prosperity gospel does something to the ego that little else on earth can do. It does mm. an excellent job of selling you the lie that you are, quote, somebody, when in reality you're nothing more than another con artist who's found a way to sell your scheme to desperate bidders. Mm. That's scathing. Yes, it really is, man. This is somebody from the inside. And so how would you, I guess I want to make, I want to use the rest of our time here to, to talk to the people who either buy into the prosperity gospel or don't even know that they're going to a church kind of like this. What do you think might be some telltale signs? What would be, what would, what would be some things that if you were under one of these guys, you'd be like, okay, no, that's, that's scary. That's, that's dangerous right there. Yeah. I I mean, honestly, I think one of the, one of the easiest telltale signs is how the church deals with grief and suffering, you know, because Uh at the core of the prosperity gospel, like if I could just really quickly talk to this, if, if at the core, it is no physical pain, mm-hmm. uh, financial prosperity, and all your relationships are solid. You ha- you don't have to look any further than Jesus himself, yep. who was born to what, a rich family or a poor family? No. A poor family. Mm-hmm. His friends stood by his side or they totally abandoned him, mm-hmm. right? And the the cross, I don't know, call me old-fashioned. Call me old-fashioned. <laughs> sounds like pain. Yes. Like there's... I, I don't know, man. And maybe it's not as easy to dismantle as I think. And maybe the lures in the, he kind of goes on in this article to talk a little bit about how he sees it to be alluring to people outside of it. People who aren't making the money that he's making, which I think is a whole other fascinating take. Like, all right, I see why it's popular for him. He's on the inside. Why? Why is this so sellable to people on the outside? And I think his, his premise is because people want hope. They want mm-hmm. the hope for this. And I think. How unfortunate that we don't give people what the Apostle Paul often talks about is joy in the midst of suffering, because that's the reality so many people live in. I think often prosperity preachers mm. w- won't even touch the topic of suffering, because if you're doing it right, you, you'll never have to deal with it. And those of us who are hopefully even half paying attention are like, well, suffering seems like it's unavoidable. Joy, joy is something that I can avoid, though, right? I, I think suffering is inevitable, and how we actually choose to respond in the midst of suffering I think is a, is a a big indicator. That's really good, man. Like suffering and just how suffering is spoken of is a good litmus test to what your church believes. And folks totally get it. Why the prosperity gospel is attractive. Yeah. Uh, I would love to believe a theology that says what uh, the more faith I have, the better off the world's going to be for me, but it's just not biblical. And so you got to, you know, theology matters. Well, I would say maybe, maybe it is better. Actually. I think it is better, but not in the ways that they would preach. Perfect. Yeah. I, I will go with that. I will go with that. So, uh, we got to be careful by who we're following uh, in the theology that we are espousing. Well, coming up next uh, on The Common Good, we are going to talk about uh, adjustments and leadership and an interesting blog post uh, about seven reasons why some adjustments don't work and some work. That's what's coming up next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.
Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. You can follow us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. You can text us at 68683, and you can find our podcast, uh, our world-renowned podcast. You think so? Dallas Jenkins takes it to the world, delighting audiences worldwide. So we do hear from some of you who podcast. If, if you are one of these people who podcast, we'd love it if you not just subscribed, but if you also reviewed it, rated it, passed it on to your friends, that would be great. Before we jump into some leadership stuff, you and I both as pastors, we, we kind of get into leadership things, leading organizations, and uh, like to talk about those every now and then. But before we do that, AM 1160 is giving you a chance to win a getaway for two to Dallas, Texas. Enter now for your chance to attend the Twisted Scripture Conference with Pastor Andrew Farley. I'm entering right now. Are you really? No. You should do it right now. I'm not allowed to. See if you, what are they going to do? By then, you'll have your prize already. That's a good point. I'm out of here. The grand prize, which Ian cannot win, includes round-trip airfare, hotel, and transportation. But here, this isn't a prize. It says you'll receive a free gift just for entering. So can you not win the prize but still get the gift? Mm, Is that a sermon right there? (laughs) (laughs) You can't get the prize, but you got the gift. (laughs) Take (laughs) Take this chance to enjoy some time away in the Lone Star State. Register now at 1160hope.com slash twisted. That's 1160hope.com slash twisted. So could somebody win that, but they're kind of lonely, don't have any friends, and they want to bring you with them? Would that be okay? I mean, I'd be fine with that. Sure. <laughs> are you are asking you, me if I'd be okay with no, that? No, would, would, is that like, are you allowed to be? Like, does the station allow them? Like, <laughs> nope, that's a host. I, I, didn't, that. I didn't read up on all the contest specifics. I would like segment. to know this. <laughs> I would like to know this. So leadership, uh, and particularly, particularly this concept of adjustments. Out of a, a blog uh, by a guy named by the by the name of Brian Dodden, uh, it's called BrianDoddenLeadership.com. He writes an article entitled "Leadership Leaders Make Adjustments: Seven Re- Reasons." I can't read seven <laughs> reasons why some work and some don't. And he says, "I've never met a leader who did not make adjustments when things are not going well. Some are big, major overhauls. Some are slight and tiny shifts." Uh, here or there in hopes of making a large impact. And he's going to say, not what are the uh, what are the adjustments, but why do sometimes do adjustments work and sometimes they don't? And you brought up something interesting when you and I were discussing this before we get into his background and his reasoning about a particular basketball coach. Um, you kind of said, I think a lot of churches were really slow to make adjustments. Yeah. And I'm curious as to why you said that. Uh, I think there's a myriad of reasons. I think, you know, because leaders are as diverse as people are. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think sometimes, you know, when you when you bring the spiritual component of a mission, vision, strategy statement, I think sometimes tweaking or adjusting or course correcting can sometimes feel like you're being unfaithful to the the call that you got in 1984, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. Like sometimes course correcting or trajectory shifting can feel like a betrayal of the original dream or the original seed. And it can, you know, it can sometimes sometimes feel like churches are like, ah, these, these new kids with their telephones and their hip hop music, you know, know, sometimes it can feel like, no, we hold fast to this, this ancient thing, which I think sometimes the subtext feels like we got to stay the course, stay the path. Like like an adjustment can sometimes feel like maybe a betrayal. I used to wonder when looking at churches that were clearly dying or like going backwards, like, isn't it clear to you? Why aren't you doing something until I became a pastor? Oh, right, right. <laughs> and now it's more like, nope, slow. No, uh, 
Let's not rock the boat. Yeah, we're going. Right. We're, we may not be running right now, but at least we're moving. Like so, the, some of the, some of that arrogance got taken away from me. But um, it is interesting to think about. I thought that was an interesting statement you make. Well, the guy here who writes the article starts to talk about Golden State Warrior head coach Steve Kerr. We're in the midst of uh, the NBA Finals. Steve Kerr's team, the Golden State Warriors, play the Toronto Raptors in Game Six tonight, and. Uh, in the June 5th edition of USA Today, columnist Dan Walken explored why Steve Kerr is one of the best coaches in NBA history in making mid-game and personnel adjustments. So there's something about Steve Kerr's um, coaching style and uh-huh. the culture and environment he's created that when he then makes adjustments, they get embraced and they tend to work. Uh, and so why don't you unpack this a little bit for us? Yeah, and just if, you, if you're if you not following Brian Dodd on Twitter, uh, I can't recommend enough. At oh, this is Brian, Brian Dodd, Dodd. Yes, on leadership. So yes. when I called him Brian Dodden, I was wrong. And I wasn't going to say anything, but I, I really want people to follow him because he writes. Oh, like, name. This, it's really great. And he writes these like weekly blogs like, hey, here's the best leadership stuff I've learned this week. And he compiles it all on a blog. And it's um, it's. Really solid. I I would highly recommend it. So he, I'm just gonna laugh that I called him Brian Dodden <laughs> instead of Brian Dodd on That's leadership. Okay. That's, That's good all stuff. Right. I'm sh- I'm sure he'll forgive Reading you. Reading is a skill for people. <laughs> okay, so here's I'll read the list and then we'll respond to them. Yep. The following are seven reasons Steve Kerr's adjustments work based on the comments above. So he was talking in the comments above about exa- everything you just said. Uh, number one, Kerr's players have complete clarity mm. in uncomfortable uh, situations. Number two, Kerr's players have confidence in high pressure situations. Three, uh, Kerr exposes his players to these situations throughout the year. Four, Kerr schedules reps, practice time, and game time for every player throughout the year. Five, Kerr manages his players' most valuable resources, time and energy. Six, Kerr's players are tested in both good and bad situations in a variety of environments. And seven, Kerr's players are fearless. He says, I think you have to be fearless too, which our team is. You can't worry about anything. You just go out there and play and compete and let it fly and whatever happens happens. So a summary mm. of the seven is clarity, confidence, exposure, reps, energy, testing, fearlessness. These are the seven reasons why some adjustments work and others do not. That's great, man. I love the first one, clarity. Like that's the one that jumped out to me. Like so often uh, I could think that I'm being clear uh, uh-huh. yes. or have given enough time to being clear. Yes. And people are just like, what? What are we doing? This feels did, like off the cuff. Did you send this Wait, in an email? Or, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like, and he says here, Kerr's players have complete clarity in uncomfortable situations. So mm-hmm. when they get into the uncomfortable situations, they already have clarity. There's already clarity. They can make the adjustments. And man, I, when I read these, that was the first one that jumped out to me. It's one that I can struggle with. Like, just because you think you're being clear doesn't mean you're being clear. So you've got to have ways to evaluate. Do is there clarity in my organization? Uh, so that people will understand why we're we're zigging rather than zagging or going left rather than going right. That one jumped out to me. And it makes me think, too, uh, we had a youth pastor back when I was in high school who would talk about, like, boundaries. You know, he was mm-hmm. talking mostly about, like, relationship stuff. Yep. And he was saying, when you're rolling around on the carpet, it's not a time to be deciding on what your boundaries are. You need to have clarity ahead of time yep. so that when those uncomfortable circumstances arise, then you know, like, ah, uh, I, I know how I'm supposed to behave here. The, the other one, I mean, I thought all these were actually pretty great and yeah. mostly applicable to the church. Confidence in high-pressure situations. I think you build that confidence when you're in low-pressure situations. I don't think you can build it at the time of the high-pressure. I think how we speak mm. to our teams and our churches and our staff uh, when everything's kind of chill actually is part of what builds to that confidence when you really need to kind of capitalize on it. 
which is hard to do because, you know, a lot of leaders are, are kind of hell bent on nitpicking stuff yes. rather than, I think, speaking life and encouragement. And all of that is equity for when the rubber really hits the road, um, when they need to draw on it. I yeah. think it's really important. And uh, man, I also like one where he says, Kerr manages his players' most valuable resources, time and energy. So Churches, important. we could be really bad at that. Oh, no, I'm just going to add more. Just going to add more. You more expectation. More Jesus. expectation. And people yeah. are like, nope, I'm checking out. Like sometimes the best thing you can do for your adjustments is to end stuff or change like, Hey, I, I know you're giving time here, but now I'm going to ask you to give your time here instead of give me more time. Yeah. Give right. me more energy. It's yes. hey, I see your value of time and energy. Let me, can we think about deploying your time and energy here? I think that's huge. I'd be so life giving too. Like think about the great bosses that you've had. They've been mindful of that. Like, yeah. Hey, I know this has been a really crazy week. Why don't you take an extra day off next week? Or letting them preempt it. Rather than us, because I, you know, I think it's easy to feel like a schmo when you have to ask for time off because you just feel fried. To have leaders that see that and preempt that, and to show, hey, you you are of greater value than just the thing that you do for this organization. Yep. So why don't I preempt this and give you extra day off? Well, you can go find that at Brian Dodd on Leadership dot com. Brian Dodd on Leadership dot com called Leaders Make Adjustments: Seven Reasons Why Some Work and Some Don't. Well, coming up next, a bit of a crazy story, a funny story. Supermarket uses embarrassing plastic bags so customers will remember their reusable it's ones. Really funny. <laughs> a really funny story we're going to talk about coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We're excited to have you joining us on this Thursday afternoon. You can follow us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. Online, old shows at 1160hope.com. You can find our podcasts uh, wherever it is you find your podcasts. And uh, you can always text us, 68683. That's 68683. Type in CG, followed by your comment. Well, you posted uh, an article on our Facebook page that got a lot of traffic the other day. Mm-hmm. And we were joking. Like, sometimes we post these really deep, thoughtful uh, articles and you'll get like two likes that are both <laughs> my then, parents yeah. and then and then you put on one that is just a complete like fun like just this and it's like 27 comments <laughs> <laughs> that's and how the, the internet works i'm th- okay with that this was one of these i believe it's out of vancouver let me just uh let me read the headline and you could give us a little bit of background here uh it says this supermarket uses embarrassing plastic bags so customers will remember they're reusable ones. What's going on there? So I actually think there's a much deeper message here that we'll we'll eventually get to. Uh, But it is in Vancouver. I feel like Canada has really been giving us a run for our money on this show the last couple of weeks, (laughs) and I couldn't be happier. So um, in an effort to help people remember to bring their reusable bags, right, the ones that you can buy at grocery stores or department stores or whatever, um, they've designed these plastic bags with these. Uh, they're supposed to be really embarrassing, uh, like logos or slogans, to sort of shame people into remembering next time. So, just to give you an idea, some of the some of the bags that they've designed say things like um, uh, "Into the Weird Adult Video Emporium." Or the colon care co-op. <laughs> so imagine you're like headed to the headed to the market to pick up pop tarts for your kids, and you have to walk out with the colon care co-op bag. And I, we posted it, and some people were like, "I would just stop going to that grocery store, or I would go for those bags." So obviously, we either have just a like a weird mix of people following the page, um, but I do think it's actually a pretty clever 
It's a clever way to keep the idea out in front that uh, they want to make this a priority for their grocery store. It's just so funny, though. Like, instead of, like you said, charging people or the set, it's like, okay, let's let's work the angle of shame here a little bit. <laughs> yeah, right. And funny. It's all so funny, right? Like, you're walking out, and these some of these bags are just ridiculous. Uh, like like wart ointment oh, wholesale. So or, yeah. <laughs> and I'd encourage you to go to our Facebook page. Ian posted this article, I believe, on Tuesday, maybe. And uh, it's got some of the pictures of them. You can read these, see them. And uh, uh, and it says this. It certainly generated interest in what we're trying to put out there. Once you start a conversation, it will skyrocket from there, <laughs> I think. And such the creative campaign won't continue indefinitely. And indeed, in an ideal world, these measures wouldn't be needed in the first place. You did hint at the fact of there might be a deeper conversation yeah. here. Uh, and you and I were talking off air. So I think I know where you're going. And that's this. Uh, the power and the, uh, yeah, just, I'll use the word power, the power of shame, the tactic of shame to get people to change behavior in a funny way. That's what they're trying to do here. Mm -hmm. Let's shame people into the fact that they're not bringing their reusable bags and, uh, we're going to make it, make them get laughed at. So yeah, it's a funny thing, but it's also shame is the mechanism. So the next time person goes, Oh, I got to remember my bag. So I don't have to come home with them. And, And you had some thoughts just on the. Uh, just the tactic and the mechanism of shame. I think shame uh, is the undercurrent of a lot of the local church's dysfunction, to oh, be honest. That I, is a big statement. I really, really think it's true. I, I think there's a lot of things that we see manifest uh, as problematic, as toxic, both individually and corporately, that I really think you can trace back to shame. And um, I don't know that churches are always necessarily at the forefront of imposing it, but I think we've all, I think we've often struggled to really uproot it too. Hmm. So in some ways we're sort of, indifferent to it and i don't know that we've aggressively enough gone after like how deep the roots of shame can go like case in point really really simple example uh a buddy of mine was at church a couple weeks ago and i hadn't seen him in a while Mm -hmm. and he's just he's a buddy of mine so i legitimately was like oh man it's great to see i haven't seen in a while and he instantly was like dude i'm so sorry i haven't been to service in the last few weeks things are crazy with the kids and i was like no 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 no, i'm not shaming there's no i just legitimately missed you and his like go to was this defensiveness like, yeah. Oh gosh, the, the pastor is, uh, is looking down at me for not being here. Like all this stuff I think is, you can laugh at that example, but I think one of the things that, uh, I think we said this last week, that's when we really truly allow grace to transform us, when we, when we don't just talk about it, but experience it fully, mm-hmm. I think we will experience less and less shame admitting the reasons that we need it. And because mm. we still, I think have so many people that are, so caught up with an inability to admit the reasons they need grace to me shows that grace hasn't really done the transforming work that it needs to yet. Interesting. And I do think there are overt and covert ways that the pulpit is sometimes used to do that. Now it's not usually outright like a pastor stopping a sermon halfway through. Like, I can't believe you're walking in right now. You're 30 (laughs) minutes late. It's not usually like that. Yeah. yeah. But don't you think that sometimes like shaming messages can easily kind of, subtly creep into messages for you know behaviors that people are so caught in or addictions that are very real or i just think sometimes pastors can be unaware at not only the the power the negative power that shame has but i think we can lack some of the proactivity to actually uproot Mm. the ways that shame shows up in our language is it ever in your opinion um uh, so as pastors we craft sermons and we're doing this is shame ever the appropriate thing to go for i don't think so why 
I don't, I don't, I, I think when Paul says there is now no condemnation, hmm. I think it is the difference between guilt and shame, to be honest. I think okay. there, are, we, there are things that we are guilty of. Okay, so what I, is the difference between those three? I, I, I think, I think in a lot of ways, this is probably too reductionistic. <laughs> guilt speaks to something I've done. Shame is something I am. Mm. Does that make sense? It does. I don't know if it's right. I just sort of said it. It works. I, I get what you're saying. Something that I've done, man, I, yeah, I, this is legitimate sin. I've, I've broken shalom. I've vandalized. Shalom, the culpable disturbance of Shalom, right? Cornelius planning that's his definition mm. of sin, that in some ways we've, we've fractured God's ideal dream for the world is something that we've done. We've participated in, we're culpable of, um, but shame says I am bad. I mm. am irredeemable. I am, uh, f- my identity is blank. Anything other than child of God, beloved mm. of God. And I think that's where guilt and shame get really tricky because sometimes we can say like, Oh, we don't want anyone to feel guilty about anything ever. Like, well, we do have there are consequences, and those things are very, very real. But I, for Paul to say something like "there is now no condemnation" is a very powerful statement because he was talking to a, a group of people, including us, yeah. who have reasons to be condemned. And the grace of Jesus does something really powerful in and through that. And I think yeah. I think that's the distinction. What about what would your word pastorally be for people out there who struggle with shame? Like that's kind of their mech, their their. Uh, and their their default, their fallback. Yeah, I think it's got to be a whole lot more than just simply like I'm initially. I would say to to know who they are in Christ, mm. but I think I honestly think that only goes so far. I think um, I usually like I have a, a list saved on my computer of like what the Bible says to be true about you, um, and I often will just share that with people. Like I encourage mm. you to meditate on these things, but I also think like we say it's got to be person to person, like get into some kind of community rhythm yeah. where you're reminding each other because right now you need someone to remind you who you really are. And six months from now, somebody else will probably need you to do it. And I think they're both equally healing when we are speaking like life and purpose and identity and not just letting people off the hook. I think great friends also hold each other accountable right. and call out crap when they see it. Like I think that's also important, but um, I, 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 don't, I don't think there is any real way to start to unravel uh, or unhook the talents of shame outside the context of community. We, we need each other. You just have to. Man, good sermon on shame. Yeah, that was thanks. good. I didn't have any all, of that. All prepared. off of grocery bags <laughs> in Canada. See, that's what we do as pastors. That was good stuff, man. That was good. Thanks, man. Uh, for Ian Sipkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You are listening to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. We're excited to have you here with us on this Thursday. I think it's Thursday, right? I don't even know anymore. <laughs> <laughs> what are days? What are days, Ooh, really? That was deep. Uh, that <laughs> was mostly was, uh, sleep-deprived. I don't think it was deep. Although, I will tell you, sleep-deprived and deep often look very they similar. They really do. People are like, wow, you're like a philosophy my, major. No. Okay, so funny story. My senior year of undergrad... Uh, I pulled more than 30 all-nighters in that oh. one semester. So I was averaging like two a week. 
and I was also taking a bunch of philosophy courses, <laughs> and I've never scored better consistently on papers before in my life. That's a wild. bunch of these papers I wrote completely devoid of sleep, and my professor was like, I really like this angle that you took. It's very... I like where you're going. I like, and I was like, I don't remember writing any of this at all. <laughs> oh, that's kind really of frightening, funny. actually. That's really funny. So I have a funny philosophy story. I only took, I only took like the basic philosophy class at Wheaton. Okay. Uh, it kind of, you know, in our gen eds. And uh, my uh, girlfriend at the time, now is my wife, Ooh. Uh, she had taken this philosophy, same prof. He's the best prof, Dr. Wood at, at Wheaton College. And I don't even know if he's still there, but... Uh, Dr. Wood was teaching the philosophy class that Carrie took like yeah. sophomore year, freshman year, well before we were dating. He would. Oh, I see what you did there. Okay. And then uh, I took him, uh, it was either second semester, se- junior year, first semester, senior year, whatever it was. And like uh, like two college lovebirds, Carrie and I were walking across campus holding hands, you know, and uh, Dr. Wood is behind us and we don't know. And he just goes really awkwardly. He goes, oh, Philosophy present and philosophy past. <laughs> wow. We were like, oh, okay. <laughs> that, that didn't make it into your vows. It was so funny. He just goes, oh, philosophy <laughs> present and philosophy past. Is... And uh, we were both like, I don't know what that just meant. It's sort of like laugh and walk away sort of situation. It really was. It was really funny. So anyway, we're glad to have you join us. Facebook, you can find us at the Common Good Radio Show online at 1160hope.com. You can text us at 68683. That is 68683. Uh, And uh, we would love to hear from you. Type in CG followed by your comment. Well, we can't get away from it, man. It's all over the news these days. Uh, We talked about it some uh, earlier in the show. It is this debate over abortion. And uh, I think a lot of people, especially in the Christian world, are trying to have Uh, good conversations about what does it actually mean to be pro-life? How do we uh, get to be um, holistically pro-life? And with that in mind, came across an article in religionnews.com that simply titled this, To save our politics, we need new ways to think and speak about abortion. To save our politics, we need new ways to speak and think about abortion. And, And later in the article, the author says... Start with pro-life and pro-choice. It isn't a matter of if, but when this hopelessly simplistic and outdated way of talking about abortion goes away. So just this concept, I I would be interested in your thoughts, just this concept of uh, that there needs to be an evolution of how we talk about abortion. Um, Do you feel that or do you feel like as we're going to our different sides, we actually need to plant our flags in one of these two camps and go hard? I very rarely feel like the planting of the flag is a helpful step forward. Um, I think it might have even been Rick Warren, who now has a show on the station, said something like, um, yeah, we should get him on. Purpose driven segment. Rick, if you're listening, (laughs) he's listening. Come on over to the common good. (laughs) Um, But his his statement was something like you can you can have compassion without losing conviction. Mm. And I th- I was much more poetic than that, but I remember and I think I might I might have honestly even had one of these sweatshirts growing up, those the uh, abortion is murder hoodies that I would wear around. Like really like, yeah, or abor- I cannot no. picture you doing that. Yeah, I mean maybe it was abortion is homicide or, or something like okay. that and I um and I I felt very strongly about this and I thought this is this is my activism, this is my and um I think back now with a pretty heavy heart um, even learning some of the stories of my female friends yeah. from high school and college and realizing that that's probably why 
for a lot of them, it wasn't a safe place to talk about the complexities of, of what they were feeling or what they were walking through. And um, so I, you know, again, while, while my convictions are probably very similar to then my methodology has certainly good. morphed and grown in the same way that I think as preachers, you you could make the case that many, if you really care about the gospel, stand on the corner and start screaming it. Yep. Right. That is the justification for a lot of these like soapbox preachers. And maybe it's wisdom, maybe it's cowardice, but you and I, I know, don't do that very often, if ever, stand on corners and just scream it. Doesn't mean that yep. we care about the gospel any less, but we've taken a different tack. Yes. And I think um, with this topic in particular, even what I just said about taking a different tack, people will already start to feel up in arms. People yep. are already feeling like their blood pressure rise. Yep. And that, therein lies the problem, in my opinion. The fact mm. that we can't even propose. Uh, a reframing of language or approach or methodology shows to me that there's an entrenchment maybe that we're unaware of. Because interesting, we're not suggesting or you're not suggesting change of views here. You're talking about understand it to be a complex issue. The first paragraph of this says uh, a semester in semester out. This person's a prof. I emphasize to my students that achieving an argument in which a genuine disagreement is actually engaged takes a significant amount of work. Oh, it does for sure. And so the question is now that people are more entrenched on their sides, do people who actually want to make a difference, are we going to be willing to get into the nuance and get into the messiness and the long-term nature of the, of the argument and the conversations or, you know, not to, not to uh, make fun of what she used to do. Do we just put on the sweatshirt and walk around and be like, end of argument? No, make, make fun of it all you want. Totally. I, I, <laughs> I wore the same things, man. I'm serious. I don't think I had that one, but I'm telling you when I was a kid, if I had had that one, yeah. I would have worn it. Really? <laughs> yes. That's so interesting to me. Well, it talks about, it, it goes on to say that like our, our conversations are already fractured, right? Mm-hmm. So if, if we have any hope of, like if something isn't done to change it, we're just, just going to continue with the fracturing. So yeah. I think at its core, if, if we believed, I don't know, that screaming the end is near mm. to non-believers uh, was yes. driving them further and further into non-belief, would we have the patience and wherewithal to say, okay, I really believe strongly in this, but what I'm doing is actually making the problem arguably worse, not better. Um, yep. Maybe I need to change my tack without feeling like you're abandoning your post or your strong conviction. And, you know, you and I have, have said in a lot of different ways that words really matter. Yep. So so even, even the nuance between calling someone pro-choice or pro-abortion. Um, and again, maybe there really are people who are pro-abortion. Yeah. The vast majority that I know are not. Mm-hmm. They are pro-choice and uh, in a lot of ways are really torn by abortion and have maybe experienced it themselves. But I think even how we frame that discussion is really, really important. And and can't you even feel the tonal shift mm. in saying one way versus the other? But I know a lot of people would uh, disagree with me passionately. Yeah, absolutely. But it is... I feel like uh, with a lot of debates in our culture, particularly now the abortion one, because it's going so extreme at the moment on both sides that it's lost any ability to nuance. And I think what you said is true. A lot of Christians, they are they can't allow for nuance in the abortion debate. And I don't think you and I are advocating for nuance of belief. I think we're advocating for nuance of argument, Hmm. because really, what's the point of an argument? You want to help the other person. I don't know. You want to to have a discussion and hopefully change their mind, right? You want them to uh, see what you mean. And and I, again, uh, that's only going to come about uh, through a, a recognition that if I yell at you and you yell the opposite at me, we might feel good about the fact that we've yelled, 
but it's not going to change anybody. It's not going to change anything. But what do you say to the person, though, that says, Brian Fromm, that way of thinking, you know, if you give a mouse a cookie, just like it would feel like you're giving up territory by changing your approach. What what would you say to the person that would accuse you of saying, oh, you're going soft in your language. It means you must not care about unborn babies or. I would say that I'm trying to use wisdom to take more territory Mm. that I think more people would actually think about the issue abortion in this case but even when you talk about evangelism people are going to be more likely i think to think about the issue when you engage them and you give them some respect and you do this rather than like you just said yelling from the street corner right. so i would say you're actually setting yourself up for greater uh, i wish there was a better word than this but greater success yeah no i get what you're unless saying unless all you want to hear is yourself yelling, and that's probably different. Do you think like giant sonograms in the middle of New York is that, like things like that? Is that is it shock? I think enough? there's something to shock value. Yeah, yeah. And I, I so I'm not against that. I think there's something to shock value, but I think if our only tactic is shock value for everything, uh, eventually everyone becomes numb to it and runs to their corner. So, but, and that's what I, and this is going to sound so kitschy and cliche, but I think of even just the uniqueness of Jesus's approach when dealing with complicated issues, right? Like I forget what the exact numbers are, but the amount of questions he's asked and the amount of answers he actually gives are very, very minimal. Yeah. He often like tells a story or he's always proposing this third way. Like he's, he's so constantly rattling these categories, which I think is uh, such a fascinating, interesting, difficult approach to, you know, dealing with really complex issues. Absolutely. Well, speaking of complex issues, I actually want to keep going with this topic but go from another tact. Christianity Today just wrote an article that says uh, pro-lifers aren't hypocrites. And I want to I want to tackle that a little bit. I want to discuss that. That's coming up next on The Common Good. AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Is this new music? Sure sounds like it. Did you choose this? Is this... You're like our music guy. Between I, don't you want, and I. I don't want to take all the credit, but, but yes, <laughs> I enjoy it. That's good. That's I'm, so good. Glad. I'm so glad. I I more picked the artist though. Keith Conrad picked the song specifically. So okay, team team effort. Well done. Thanks. See, Keith does more than just try to embarrass us and make us uncomfortable at the end of the show. Mm, I think that's meant, still his primary. primary. <laughs> Obviously, that's priority numero uno for sure. Uh, so Christianity Today, I'm getting good at saying that, uh, on ChristianityToday.com, the title is this, Pro-Lifers Aren't Hypocrites. Uh, Tish Harrison Warren wrote an article, uh, and, and off of the last topic that we just discussed about how to, how to have a discussion about abortion, one of the things, and I've heard it and I've seen it on TV, one of the things that oftentimes um, pro, you, you differentiated well last time, so I'll use them both, pro-choice or pro-abortion people will say, is that pro-life people aren't willing to put in the work uh, to um, uh, to to help uh, people. Okay, if we're going to care about the babies, what are you going to do to help going forward? Uh, and she says this. She makes the claim that pro-life people are actually doing a lot of work. And a lot of this goes back. Think about we talked about that thing from Alabama the other day with they, they were very much against abortion, but they also were setting records for adoptions and stuff like that. And uh, so I'm curious, have you heard this either thrown your way or just in the debate uh, that pro-life people, churches or uh, or uh, nonprofits or whatever uh, aren't doing enough to actually um, make having unwanted babies even possible? I've heard accusations. Yeah, I think um, the way that I try to frame it is let's not just be pro-birth. So it's 
I always try to frame it as a let's not or let's rather than yeah. you aren't. Um, and, you know, for example, like I think of my parents in Detroit who are doing far more than most people I know, actually. So sometimes these uh, like armchair activists, I want to say <laughs> anyone, anyone who's pro-life is only mm-hmm. pro-birth. And I'm like, well, you should really meet Eric and Colette Simpkins because they're, mm. they're doing more than most people I know on planet earth. So there, there is this, I'm really, really grateful for parents that kind of model this, uh, like yeah. blurring of the lines of these like easy hyper categories. And again, I get social media, social media and memes are memes. And so things are, you know, meant to fit in a really like quick soundbite. And they aren't probably totally helpful for like intelligent, rigorous dialogue and conversation. Um, but I also think it is an, it's an easy accusation. I don't think it's one without any warrant. Yes. I do think a lot of the pro-life, uh, positioning, is exactly that where, you know, not everybody who is um, is waving that flag actually is putting their money where their mouth is in a pro-life yep. womb to tomb sense. So it isn't without some warrant that some people I think are being called to account. Yeah. But, uh, you know, this article makes a really strong case for the just the raw sense that um, a lot of people are taking the whole sanctity of life arc all the way through, yeah. uh, you know, from cradle to coffin in a way that is, is really meaningful. Let's, uh, let's challenge some people here. Let's, <laughs> let's maybe step in it here. What does it look like for you? I love the line um, to be pro-life from womb to tomb. Like, I, I love that. What does that look like for, uh, you know, if you were to preach a sermon like, hey, we need to be pro-life fully from womb to tomb, what are some things you're going to hold up? What are some things that even might make some people uncomfortable? That if we were, if we had this, she talks about having a pro-life ethic that goes through all of your politics, that goes through everything. What does that look like? Maybe where are we not doing that well, generally speaking, as evangelicals? What what are some things that come to mind for you? Yeah, without getting... And I'll jump into it right. too for you. Yeah, without, without getting too partisan, at least um, in this hypothetical pulpit scenario... I think or let's get it off the pulpit. Maybe. No, let's start there. I want to let you go wherever. No, you want. <laughs> I want to start there. I want to start a pulpit because I think that there's, there are some really helpful starting points where we are given, I think a, a pretty, a pretty clear picture of the, the type of religion, the type of faith that we're called to orphans and okay. widows. Uh, Jesus's um, command to care for the least of these. Um, th- those are, I think important places to start. Because it's so easy for us to miss. I think I think when we're caught up in positioning and climbing ladders of our own organizations or infrastructures or whatever, um, if we're not, if all we're doing is like writing checks places, which some people obviously have been like, compl- they've been equipped to write big old fatty checks. And mm-hmm. I'm so grateful for that because mm-hmm. that's never going to be me. So I, I, I'm not discrediting any of that. But I d- there's a little part of my brain that starts to tweak when we spend all this money on a mission trip to Nicaragua, but we're a total jerk to our next door neighbor. Like it has to start, it has to start um, micro, I think. And it has to start with who are the overlooked people, who are the exploited people, who are the marginalized people. And if we're not willing um, to stand with and dialogue with and speak up on behalf of, then a lot of this like bigger picture stuff seems to get a little wobbly for me. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. I, uh, she writes in this article to be consistently pro-life in this moment of American history is therefore to be politically homeless, which I find fascinating because uh, that's not often how we talk about our politics. But if, if the lens for if the lens that we're going to treat all politics is a pro-life ethic, then I do think it causes us to ask some really hard questions about 
um, poverty, about yeah. um, guns. Yeah. And, and I'm, say, I'm not telling you which side to end up on here. Which side should I end up on, but Ryan? I, you, should, you should have the, the um, integrity to say, okay, the umbrella is I want to be pro-life. I want to empower people. I want to, and we got to define that a little bit. But however you define what it means to be fully pro-life from womb to tomb, then that becomes the lens through which you see other topics like poverty yeah. or gun control or death penalty or prison reform, whatever else it might be. Immigration. Immigration. Yes. I, I don't think being politically homeless is the worst thing in the world either. I do not at I, all. I think it um, it gets the talons out of the 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 marketing that is pretty inextricable, I think, with with either camp. Right. So you end up and I think more and more people are becoming more informed, more researched. Mm-hmm. Um, I really do think we are finding fewer and fewer single issue voters. Um, there is a a decent level of dismantling of this kind of brand loyalty, I think, in a good way. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm not saying don't be loyal to your party. That, mm-hmm. That's OK, but not at the detriment of like critical thought and yep. helpful dialogue across the aisle, which again is something it's, you know, in a radio booth is something much easier for us to say, but what about when they stomp on that thing that is so obvious to me and they actually disagree. And how could you call yourself a Christian? I like, it's when we jump to these uh, assertions and these condemnations and these accusations that I think we really struggle to like everything that you just said. I think most Christ followers I know, would say, yeah, I also want to care about the least of these. I disagree yep. how we do it. Big government, small government, exactly. immigration. Like, well, yeah, I want to care about those people, but we have to care about our people first. Or what about the veterans? Or what about the, you know what I mean? Like, yep. they all seem rooted. And if we could say that, the Christ follower, I think it's hard to get around, you know, Jesus's love for the marginalized and exploited. Yeah. But for someone to say like, yeah, but he probably didn't mean trans people, <laughs> right? Probably didn't mean like those trying to come over the border. That's not yeah. what he had in mind. Like, okay, well now, now scripture is tricky because we're agreeing with what we think he's saying, but we're totally disagreeing with how it's applied, which has been the age old tensions. Why yeah. we have 17,000 different denominations in the United States alone, <laughs> because one camp said to the other, like, nah, you missed it. We're going this way. You know what I mean? Like that's, yeah. so that's, but more despondent than I wanted to sound. <laughs> but it's it's really true. It's what we talked about. I don't know. Was it earlier today or yesterday where we talked about J.D. Greer at the Southern Baptist saying, don't be a political stooge yeah. uh, to any one political party. And I think that's where you start to get yourself in trouble is when it's like, nope, I'm always this party. As opposed to like, you know what? I'm always let's keep using the term. I'm always pro-life. And one political party does not corner the market on that. But instead, I'm going to ask hard questions at every level yeah, about this. Right. And then if you come out conservative in your economics, you've done it for the right reason. If you come out liberal in your you've done it for the right reason. Right. And I, I think that sometimes instead we say, well, all conservatives have to, you know, I'm a conservative. And before I'm, you know, wh- whatever, I'm a conservative. So I have to think this and this and this as opposed to. You know, what's it mean to be pro-life when it comes to guns? I'm going to wrestle with that, and then that's what I'm going to stand on. Which I think requires a lot of listening, too. It does. We're and not you, doing a lot of that right now. Exactly. And you could come out on either side. Like, you could end up being like, I'm totally Second Amendment guy because you've thought it through in that way. Great. Yeah. But yeah. I just want to hear how you got there. And you could be the other side. You could be Mr. Big Government, like you said. You could be Mr. Small Government. But I, I think we have to be careful about being like, I'm pro-life in the abortion debate, but not necessarily over everything else. I think, especially as Christ followers, with the image of God and and the value of life, we've got to value all life equally, and then therefore let that inform how we go. Yeah, and I, I, again, I, I, I don't know that I know any pro-life people who wouldn't say I'm pro-all-of-life. Mm-hmm. I think where it gets really tricky and unhelpful is when we 
accuse disagreements as meaning not caring about life. But I do also understand both sides of that, that sometimes when we pass certain bills and laws that don't seem to care very well for the least of us, um, that seems like a money where your mouth is issue that is way more complicated than we have time to tackle right now. There you go. There you go. Uh, Coming up next on The Common Good, our, our friend Ed Stetzer, he wrote an article that says this, hospitals, not country clubs, Churches without the broken are broken churches. That is a provocative statement that we are going to wrestle with as pastors. Uh, That's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. We are glad that you're joining us today. As always, you can find us at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show on Facebook. It's there that we try to uh, continue uh, the conversation that we've been having here during the show. And, uh, hey, I don't know if you've noticed, this is going to sound like patting ourselves on the back, but uh, we've been getting, you know what, it used to be when we first started the show, we'd get lots of uh, Facebook love from people, lots of likes from people, and then you'd click on it, and it was either your friend or my friend. Usually, seventy-five percent of the time, it was your friends because you have lots more friends on Facebook than That's me. That's not true, and uh, kind of true. But all right. <laughs> uh, but lately, uh, we've been getting lots of likes, and then I'll click on it, and they're not connected to anybody I know. Feels like a good sign. <laughs> Feels right. good to me. That is a pat on the back. You're or right. They're, or they're kind of fishing for something. One of the two. <laughs> you, you know how you always answer that when I ask you those Facebook questions? You're like, it's algorithms. <laughs> and I never know what that means. <laughs> I don't think I've ever said that it's to you. Have. It's algorithms. <laughs> Maybe not in that exact way. That's What's what I, the answer? It's algorithms. That's what I say when um, when the former Vice President Al Gore is playing the drums. Those are those are. Just al- that, those but, are those are algorithms. I was going to say, let that sit there for somebody to think about that. No, you, it's probably, it's probably you, better than they don't. Did you just make that up or is that? Uh, I'm sure I didn't. I'm sure that was. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's just your opinion, man. I like that algorithm. I'm like, inst- so I am right now in the um, perfect age of dad jokes. My kids are that age. Yeah. And man, it's like a light switch has gone off in me. I tell the worst jokes to my kids and the worse it is. I love it. So I'm going to tell them. They might not know who Al Gore oh, is. Oh, that's but. true. You should you should make this a really long form joke. Like make them watch all of uh, Inconvenient Truth, and then like sit through a documentary of Al Gore, and then land that joke with them. Like make Just it a, so like a four hour setup. <laughs> I got to tell you, it is. You are going to be great at the dead oh, jokes. Thanks, man. Are, I have faith in you, but I've, really I've got that. it already. Well, Ed Stetzer at churchleaders.com. <laughs> segue. Speaking of dad Take jokes. A breath, man. <laughs> speaking of dad jokes, Ed Stetzer. Uh, at churchleaders.com, he wrote an article entitled this, Hospitals, Not Country Clubs, Churches Without the Broken Are Broken Churches. And he says this, It is a natural thing for Christians to want to be around other Christians. Something special happens in the fellowship of believers, but too much of a good thing can lead to broken churches. We can worship freely, study deeply, and communicate communicate clearly. That's easy for me to say. <laughs> Hanging out with like-minded people who appear to have their stuff together, he writes, can be a wonderful thing. But how well are we engaging those who aren't as spiritually stable as we, parenthetically, think we are? He keeps going. I've been fascinated by the fact that a lot of Christians don't seem to like non-Christians, otherwise known as, quote, the lost, the unchurched, or whatever other term you may want to use. They want to keep away from the messy people, perhaps missing the obvious that we are messy as well. So uh, just interested in your feedback on this. And then I'd I'd be more interested in the practicality of this. 
is this something that you can program towards or like you can like say this is what we're going to be as a church or is this through teaching? How do we get there? But first, just some feedback, uh, just some initial reactions to what Stetzer writes there. I don't know that you can program toward it, but I think you can certainly program away from it. And I think this is is another one of those things where. 99.9% 99.9% of pastors I know would read this and go, yes. 100%. And they would be all on board. And then you actually ask the people that are part of their community, like, no, that's not actually true of us. Yep. So I, it's this is what's so tricky about this is because it feels like almost a straw man. Like, yeah. Uh, like, it's not making a case that anyone's arguing for. Like, no. No, church should be full of fake people. We should hide all of our brokenness. We should pretend we're okay when we're not. That's what the church, like, nobody's mm. making that argument. Um, so for me, the the thing beneath the thing is extra tricky because this is the thing that all of us would not yeah, add if we were at a church planning conference or a leaders conference. We go, yeah, that's that's totally right, and it you know feels good in a moment to kind of be reminded of it. Yeah, which I think can have an effect. What I think is way trickier uh, is uh, is the things that we're not saying mm. because you know we get a chance to preach every week, and I've never heard a preacher say. Fake it till you make it (laughs) or just pretend everything's fine. Don't let anyone in on your garbage. Like I've never heard anything close to that. Um, Maybe I'm hanging out in the wrong circles, but for me, it's the, it's the subtle, it's a lot of the, what do we celebrate? What do we reward? Mm. What what are the subtext? You know, like I've never heard a preacher say single people don't matter, but truthfully, a lot of people, a lot of single people feel like they don't matter in their churches, Mm. not because of anything they are saying, but yeah. often because of what they're not saying. So in the same way, what what are we not saying that I think is maybe perpetuating this is, uh, is a question worth wrestling with. Well, let's wrestle with that because he says a church without the broken is a broken church. And I do think you're right. A little bit of a straw man here because obviously every pastor or Christian is going to get up and go, whoa, but we're broken, right? <laughs> like, right. Uh, but yet he, his, uh, one of his uh, theses here is that we don't act like we're broken. We don't actually think that we are. Um, so I would a hundred percent agree with you that every church would sign off for this. They want to be this in theory. Yeah. Uh, this is what we set vision towards. This is, we're going to be a missional church. We're going to be a seeker church kind of like to reach these types of people. But I think you and I both would agree that, that most churches don't look like this. And so let's wrestle with the why, why, why is the practice and the result different than um, the stated goal and what we're hoping to be. What would, what comes to mind for you? You and I have both grown up in the church. We get church. Yeah. Uh, what might be some of the reasons why churches might, to use his metaphor, might be more country club than hospital? I think because we know it's more appealing. Mm. People aren't going to a hospital to hang out. They're going to country clubs, though. And I think uh, uh, there is so much embedded in uh, our Western way of doing church. And it's, it's certainly a lot of it's very good. Yep. Um, but I think we in a lot of ways, so swim in the stream of marketing and branding mm-hmm. and appeal and relevance. And again, none of those things are bad, nope. but when they're King, when they're chief, like, Oh golly, why would we like show off the warts and the scars? That's unappealing. Mm. I think, I think we do sometimes convince ourselves that appeal is the the main goal. And then we'll like get them, dis- we'll get them discipled later on the road. But like, mm. Get them in. And this is a lot of this is the age old debate of the, you know, the seeker sensitive, all that stuff, which to me, to me, is a little bit of a ridiculous argument because shouldn't every church be welcoming to seekers? Yeah. Period. Like, I, it's weird to me that we knock churches that are like, oh, that church can't be doing it right. All these non-Christians are going. And they're like, 
That sounds awesome. That sounds yeah. great. Like yeah. it should be. Um, but a lot of it can come down to a debate of what is the Sunday gathering for? Is that a time for outreach and evangelism or is it a time for the body that's a good conversation. Uh, to be edified? And maybe that's a conversation for a whole different yeah. time. Yeah. I just think that we really do um, for better or for worse. And I've learned this by, by having friends that, you know, do internships with us from other parts of the globe. They're like, wow, you guys really obsess over this moment or this branding or how you package mm. this or how you, which I would maybe disagree with. I think a lot of it's context comparison, but um, I think that's part of it. I think we, you know, at the surface, we're like, oh, country clubs are appealing. No one's yeah. going to hang out in hospitals unless they have to. Um, and if the goal is just to get people in the door, I could I could see why country clubs would be an, an appealing approach. Yeah. And I also think, especially I feel this in the Western suburbs where you both, both you and I are, uh, uh, quite frankly, just the dirty little secret is a lot of church growth is just people going from one church to another. Right. And so you end up your appeal, uh, usually not. It's usually not stated like I don't write on the board like, hey, let's go get uh, disenfranchised people from other churches. Right, right. But we do. It, the, a lot of the conversation becomes about how do we, you know, be a comfortable spot for people moving to, you know, and then and, and that kind of swapping. Uh, I, I don't know that a lot of churches are really going for the broken and the messy because mm. you and I have both dealt with the real everybody's broken, but a lot of times people first coming to your church are really broken. Yeah. Outwardly right. broken. They don't have much to offer you. And uh, that can be really draining. <laughs> yeah. It's a question. I think I try to keep in front of our, our team a lot too, is uh, if you can't think of one non-Christian friend in your life right now, yeah. it might be time to change that. Yeah. Because when you work at a church, it's easy. Really? To just easy. only pay attention to the church street. You're not getting emails from the people outside of the church. It's emails yeah. from the parents or from the congregants or whatever that have issues with the volume and yep. the length of time and the kids ministry and the blah, blah, blah. If left to your own devices, pastor Brian and Ian, even yep. that can become our, our only focus. And I think if that is the only thing you do, you won't do any of it. Well, that's really good. I man. think you have to be mindful about uh, paying attention to all, all aspects of life. That's good. We'd love your feedback on this. Six, eight, six, eight, three, or at the common good radio show on Facebook. I love wrestling with just kind of, church stuff with you both as pastors it always challenges me so speaking of challenging we always land the plane here with just crazy stuff we have found from the internet so let's do that coming up next on the common good am 1160 hope for your life here's some weird stuff we found on the internet here's some more weird stuff we found on the web Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. It's been a fun show to be together today. Uh, And the way we always end each and every show uh, is just with uh, a disclaimer first, that these funny stories, troubling stories, whatever stories they are from the internet, we don't know them. They've come from our executive producer, Keith Conrad, from inside his brain. And so, uh, scary place. And so we read them sight unseen and uh, we laugh with you. We cringe with you, but you know, it's a good time. We're doing it together. So oh, let's come, come with this. us on this cringe journey. Come with us on the journey into <laughs> Keith Conrad's head. Go ahead. You All go right. first. California fake license plate leads to driver's arrest in California. Ooh, what Ooh. a tease. Also, this plate looks terrible. Uh, Authorities in California said a fake license plate that listed the wrong name (laughs) for the state led to an arrest of a truck truck driver. The Moore Park Police Department said a motorcycle officer pulled over a tractor trailer spotted with an apparently handmade license plate. It's not even close. (laughs) That listed the state as Califas, (laughs) a Spanish slang for California. Oh, I didn't know that. The driver of the truck ended up arrested on drug charges, driving without a license and having an active warrant for his arrest. The tractor trailer he was driving was towed from the scene because it was unsafe to be driven, the department said. 
Was that wrong? <laughs> Should I not have done that? <laughs> Good Seinfeld reference. Next one, California. Startup offers to name your baby for $350. I'm game. I would have been in on this. A startup is offering baffled new parents some help with one of their post most. That's supposed to say most, right? <laughs> one of their most important decisions, naming the baby. Future Perfect, a startup founded by two moms who met on a playground and bonded over their children's unique names, is offering packages starting at $100 to help new parents choose what to call their children. Wow. The $100 The Riff package <laughs> includes a 15-minute name-storming session via phone, while the $350 The Works package features a 15-minute consultation that leads to a list of 10 suggested first names and 10 suggested middle names for the baby. Unlike the subjective opinions friends and family members might give you, our advice will be neutral, unbiased, tailored to your needs, and might I add, pretentious. <laughs> First, Mr. Samir Naga. Oh, gosh. Naga, not going to work here anymore anyway. <laughs> Wait, why is that pretentious? I'm going to name your kid. Come on now. Sorry. Uh, you know, you got to give me more than that. I'm curious, Brian Fromm. Let's treat it like a real I segment. Know, why is that felt, pretentious? That felt like we know best how to name children. Ah, it's uh, consulting. Uh, they're helping people out when they're right, stressed. Unfair. They're... Future perfect. That was unfair of me. Oh, is that what it's called again? Yep, pretentious. <laughs> Future perfect sounds like a cult. I'm just saying. All right, Japan. Japan outlaws flying drones while drunk. Good idea. Is it, though? Yeah. All right. Operating a drone in Japan while drunk could lead you to a year in prison. All right. The law passed by the country's parliament this week seeks to rein in the growing use of unmanned aerial vehicles. Those found to be intoxicating while flying a drone could also face a fine of 300,000 yen, which is roughly 14 cents. The law covers drones weighing more than 200 grams. How many ounces are 200 grams? Seven. Way to go. You read that. And also puts limits on where drones can be flown. We believe operating drones after consuming alcohol is as serious as drunk driving, a Japanese transport ministry official told AFP News. As well as fines over drunken use, the legislation also levies fines on pilots who perform dangerous stunts with their drone. Those caught quickly plunging the craft towards the crowds could face fines of up to 500,000 yen. I took the wrong week to quit drinking. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like a weird, it's a, it's a weird flex. It is. South Carolina, a woman spotted a possum inside restaurant during meal. I gotta, I gotta take that one in a little bit. <laughs> Customers at a Columbia area restaurant recently received an unexpected visit at the bar. Uh, a lady and her family noticed an opossum under the counter at Applebee's. Uh, I've got Applebee's stories for you that are not far off from this one. <laughs> Needless to say, the woman was less than thrilled by the possum's appearance. I paid my bill of $36 and left. However, I should have been compensated for this meal. Who, now, who knows how long the opossum was inside the restaurant. Since being posted, the post has received on Facebook more than 1,000 comments and has been shared 1,500 times. The safety of our guest, Applebee's said, and team members, as well as the cleanliness of our restaurants is a priority. Apparently not. Oh, no. All right, ending the show with our favorite state, Florida. I knew it was coming. Okay, stowaway snake catches flight from Florida, Hawaii. I think I already know what the soundbite is for this one. <laughs> a sm- a small snake was ca- s- steak. Snake. Jeez, Louise. Steak. Small Sounds good. S- snake was captured in Hawaii after stowing away to the island of Maui in a tourist backpack. Prior to his flight from Florida, wildlife officials said the man arrived at his rental on Maui and discovered the non-venomous southern black racer snake had apparently slithered into his backpack prior to the eight-hour flight from Fort Lauderdale to Hawaii. The snake, which officials said would have been invasive and potentially harmful to the Hawaiian environment, was captured by an official from Hawaii's Department of Land and Natural Resources. Enough is enough! I have had it with these mother... 
monkey fighting snakes uh-huh. on this Monday to Friday play. Uh-huh. Yeah, that sounds it. about right. I've been weirded out if it wasn't that, actually. I know. I think we've climbed into Keith Conrad's head a little bit. Like, we, <laughs> we can kind of tell what's Ooh, coming. Ooh, it's kind of Inception, isn't it? It's a dangerous. A dream within a dream. <laughs> I'm just going to ponder that as we close this show. <laughs> Anyway, we're glad that you joined us today on this Thursday afternoon. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.